You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— and they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. That's lovely, Gary. It is By the way, that's, play it, right? Yeah, but that's not your usual instrument, no? No, normally I play bass, but I bought this acoustic guitar to record with, but I'm not used to playing it because there's six strings, and yeah. they're very tiny. Do you ever just make up uh, songs? You know, I just... just did, actually. I just made that up. Big fan of minor. Yeah, there's something about minor keys. I mean, maybe it's because they yank at your heart strings. That's the whole thing, yeah. You immediately want to start weeping. <laughs> well, he's Gary Niederhoff, and I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology. And in this episode, humans are a creative species. Our impulse to tinker, build, paint, write, sing, dance, and invent is unique in the animal kingdom. But why do we do what we do? A neuroscientist and composer join us to discuss what is creativity exactly, what goes on in our brains when we pick up a pen or paintbrush, and whether our own clever, artificially intelligent creations will be the next Thomas Edison, Beyonce, Jane Austen, Banksy, or Steve Jobs. It's Creative Brains. We're about to make the case that human creativity is special and that it's the driving force of cultural change, and we will do that. But maybe you're not so sure that humans are endowed with a unique creative ability. Well, let me put it this way. Have you ever read a book written by a chicken? Answer truthfully. Uh, Yeah, I loved Great Expectations. Oh, and Poultry of a Lady, Timeless. And don't forget The Adventures of Huckleberry Chicken. Another good one, yeah. And Oh, and Dreams of My Feather... 
Chickens are admirable for many reasons. Some are even relatively clever, but with all respect to our feathered friends, expecting them to pen great literature, well, if I were a publisher, I wouldn't send them in advance. There is only one species that ever gets author or production credit. Human creativity uniquely separates us from the other animals. Homo sapiens brains are wired to imagine the possibilities of connecting two wheels with a shaft to create an axle or to hear the rhythms of iambic pentameter. Following through on those creative impulses, whether in art, sciences, or technology, is what has built civilization and made us the most successful species, argue authors of the book The Runaway Species, How Human Creativity Remakes the World. Composer and Rice University professor Anthony Brandt and Stanford University neuroscientist David Eagleman discuss the creative impulse, beginning with answering the question, what is creativity? And in a bit of creative interviewing, Molly and I grilled David and Anthony together. David, from a neurological perspective, what is creativity? More specifically, what's the difference between our ancestors building a fire or hunting an animal and painting something on a cave wall? Both the hunting and the painting required the same basic brain operations, which is taking in their world and figuring out what they could do with that information, how they could mash up that kind of information that they're getting to create something new. And this is what human brains are particularly good at, is saying, all right, well, I've seen this, I've learned that, I've observed this thing over here, and I'm going to mash it up and, and put together a, a series of what-ifs. And then I'm going to evaluate those what-ifs. So even when it comes to hunting, what made early humans quite special is the capacity to go and say, okay, I'm going to get the big animals to run down this valley, and then you jump out over here. and you do That's really creative stuff. Painting on a cave wall is the same. It's interesting because I thought you were going to distinguish between those and say, well, painting on a cave wall is one thing, and building a fire or hunting an animal is something different. But it sounds like from your description that there's similar innovative processes. Exactly right. And this is one of the things that uh, my co-author, Tony Brandt, and I have really concentrated on was, was the, the parallels between arts and sciences where with the arts you have overt creativity and you can really see stuff in action. But with the sciences, starting with how to hunt better all the way up to how to build a better mobile phone, what you have is really the exact same brain mechanisms that take in information and mash it up and create all kinds of unbelievably creative stuff that didn't exist just before. It's exactly the same stuff going on. It's just more covert in the sciences. So in other words, David, you're saying that scientific uh, innovation, coming up with an hypothesis, uh, maybe the way Einstein did when he was riding that trolley in Basel or wherever it was, is uh, basically the same sort of creativity as Rembrandt creating a painting? I mean, it, I think artists would object to that. <laughs> well, they might, but neuroscientists wouldn't, in the sense that what's <laughs> happening under the hood is they're very basic operations. And so what Tony and I did is broke this down into really essentially three main operations. There's bending, breaking, and blending, which means the brain takes in all this information, and then it either bends things by making it bigger or smaller or warped in some way, or it breaks them by you know taking an idea and smooshing it up and looking at the pieces and parts, or, or by blending two different ideas to make some sort of hybrid. And, and it turns out that these three main brain operations are the things that describe 
how brains invent, how they innovate based on what's come before. Tony, do you want to add to David's definition of creativity? I assume that the two of you came up with the three Bs together. Yes. You know, in our view, creativity is the remodeling of what your experiences are into something that hasn't existed before. And it's incredibly important that you need that reservoir of experience to draw upon, whether you're an Einstein or a Rembrandt. And then these three basic cognitive tools, bending, breaking, and blending, are the means by which ideas evolve. And one of the really interesting things, I think, that came out of our study on this is just the way that creativity so often seems to be portrayed as a strike of lightning or, you know, the muse whispers something to you and there's some bolt out of the blue. But in fact, every creative idea has a genealogy. Every creative idea comes from all the inputs you've received and then you mash them together in different ways and that's how creativity actually happens. Uh, Tony and David, you begin your book with an intriguing comparison and that is between the 1970 flight of Apollo 13 where they ran into trouble on the far side of the mm -hmm. moon, and a 1907 Cubist painting by Picasso. Now, first, Tony, what acts of creativity are being compared with these two rather disparate events? Well, we try to pick things that seem poles apart at first view. So with the NASA situation, you have a room full of engineers working around the clock, They've run some simulations of things that could go wrong, and no one predicted, basically, the, the command module blowing up and these three souls being stranded in space 200,000 miles away from home. And through incredible ingenuity, like the famous story about figuring out how to get a, a square filter into a round hole, the engineers devise this improvised protocol that eventually brings those astronauts home. And all of that happens in real time, fighting the clock, oxygen running out. Within three days, they've saved the astronauts. In contrast, Picasso is in his studio. He decides to paint a painting of five prostitutes. At first, he's got two guys, medical students in the picture. He crosses those out. He's doing a lot of charcoal sketches. He starts to work on his canvas. He's got this goal that he wants to exercise his previous way of working, and so he gets more and more experimental, and eventually it becomes what's considered by some people the most revolutionary painting of the last 700 years of Western art. And so you look at these two stories, on the one hand you have this real-time creativity where the under incredible time pressure and Picasso taking his time, not worried about the clock, nine years before he even brings it out into public. The engineers are collaborating. Picasso's working all by himself. And, you know, again, from the outside, these stories seem to be so different from each other. But what David and I argue is that underneath the hood of our brains, what those engineers are doing and what Picasso are doing are essentially the same things. So the same things are going on under the hood. The cognitive subroutines are similar, and could you please say more about that? Do you mean the three Bs, um, whether or not they're bending, blending, or breaking? Yeah. For instance, at one point, the uh, engineers realized that they have to use the lunar module to charge the batteries of the command module, but it was supposed to have been the other way around. And that's a good example of a bend where, you know, you're taking an archetype and you're twisting it around in some way, making a whole new solution. And Picasso, if you've seen his painting, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, it's not a realistic view of human figures. Uh, limbs are distorted and transformed and exaggerated in different shapes. 
same reality we all live, but a transformed version of it. Well, in the case of the Apollo astronauts, I would I would call it ingenuity, right? Uh, you know, Yankee ingenuity, or even you know, Southern ingenuity, if that exists. And from the South, I would say it does. Uh, but you know, for me, the the question is. What's the difference between ingenuity and creativity? David? I think there's none. I think what they did was exactly an act of creativity in the sense that they're taking in everything they know about the module and how it all operates, and then they're having to create new versions of things and say, well, what if we did that? What if we did that? And and evaluate those hypotheses. I mean, one of the really striking things about the human brain, which as far as we know, no other animal species does, is we're able to create possibilities and evaluate them. The, the philosopher Karl Popper said, this is what allows our hypotheses to die in our stead. So we don't have to try everything out physically like other animals, but we can try them out mentally. And this is what the engineers at NASA had to do. And the end result, you might look at and you say, hey, well, that's ingenuity. But what got them there were these basic cognitive routines, which, you know, one of the things that always struck us is, why don't other animals do that? Why don't cows get to the moon? Uh, it's not like we're racing them to get there. Um, <laughs> Some and, have been over the moon. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. And so the question is, what is it that makes us stand completely apart as a species on the planet? And, you know, essentially this has to do with some small genetic tweaks that have caused our brain, and in particular our cortex, the wrinkly bit on the outside, to expand massively. And that's sort of the magic stuff that allows us to not simply act reflexively, but because we have so much cortex, stuff gets stored in there, we can reflect on different options, and then maybe act or maybe not. And, and because of this area called the prefrontal cortex right behind the forehead, we can evaluate possibilities, evaluate what-ifs. But is that really the case? I mean, you know, in the past, we've said only humans can, for example, use tools. That turned out not to be entirely correct, right? Only humans like music, but, you know, people with dogs who like to howl or whatever, right? So, I mean, so is it possible that, in fact, animals are just as creative or at least you know, 10% as creative as homo sapiens. Can I throw in an example? Like, look at the bowerbirds. They make those beautiful nests. You're mm-hmm. laughing. Why do you get this example a lot? Yeah, maybe? Tony and I talked about this okay. example, yeah. Okay, so you have the, they make these incredibly dazzling and elaborate nests, and then you have crows, which are very intelligent birds. Many birds are intelligent, but they fashion new tools to solve problems. The way that we measure this with crows or bowerbirds is we give these intelligence tests to see if they can solve some sort of problem. And they can. They're very intelligent. The difference is crows don't build F-16 jets to get where they're going faster. (laughs) And we do. And so it is absolutely the case that other animals show signs of intelligence and creativity. And, you know, where we are as humans is on a spectrum. It's just that we're so far out on the spectrum that we have created civilizations around us. And when we look around the planet, all we can point to is is bowerbirds with their dazzling nests or crows who can, you know, peck open a little combination lock and, and that's it. And so it's just a matter of degree here. Yeah, well, you know, you've forgotten the crow magnets. But <laughs> let, let me – I think you make an interesting point about the fact that one distinguishing aspect of creativity in humans, which seems to be its exclusive haunt, and uh, other creatures is that they don't 
really move on, that their their lives are no different than their predecessors of, you know, 100,000 for that matter, in some cases 100 million years ago. And we, we keep changing the game. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that's, I assume, is just a, a consequence of uh, creativity, David. I was in an airplane a while ago and looking out the window as we passed over a forest. And the forest looks exactly the way it did a million years ago. But when you come to the city where you're landing in, it's unbelievable. The whole land has risen out of the earth like a motherboard. And, and that's due to one single species. What about the relationship of uh, creativity to, to novelty, right? I mean, because you don't have that in the three Bs. And somehow I feel that if Itzhak Perlman, you know, played some, I don't know, violin concerto for the 427th time, you would say, well, that's not terribly creative. He's done that 426 times before. And if it isn't new, it isn't creative. So the problem with playing the same violin concerto over and over is that what we see in brains is something called repetition suppression, which is to say the brain really hates something that is repeated over and over. The first time it is exposed to something, it has a big response. You can measure this uh, in neuroimaging. And then the second time you present the exact same thing, man, it has a little less response. Third time, it's really getting bored of it. But, and it goes down and down and down. So it's this repetition suppression which really is us incorporating whatever we're seeing into our internal model of the world, such that the brain has less and less of a reaction to it. This is the thing that drives us to seek novelty. So we are a tremendously novelty-seeking species, and we're constantly looking for the new. What's interesting is that we love novelty, but we don't want things that are too novel. We also like things that are familiar in some way. And so there's this very interesting tug of war between wanting things that are novel, but wanting also to know where we stand and wanting things that are familiar. For example, you don't want to wake up and suddenly gravity is reversed and so you're sticking to the ceiling and you, you, you don't want that kind of world. And, you know, we... Uh, yes, you do. That would be so cool. <laughs> it, it, it would be cool unless it happened at random and on any given morning you didn't know what was going to happen. Especially if you have kids. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, I mean, this is true for the automobile industry, right? It comes out with next year's models but they can't be so radically different from this year's models, right. not because they couldn't do it, but because they wouldn't sell. Exactly. So right. look, I've got the latest Google phone here, but it's rectangular and looks pretty much like the last version. It's not a triangle or a circle or something. And so... You know you just sent a bunch of engineers back to the drawing board to create the circle. <laughs> I hope so. Good. <laughs> Handheld device. <laughs> but, but the issue is... We, we always want to live in that tension. So, you know, for example, it's very easy to do something that stays too close to the familiar and therefore it doesn't catch on. Everyone's bored by it. Or to do something too wacky and no one follows you there because it's too far out. And so part of the interesting bit about creativity is that creativity is judged by the society that you're in. And you can do all sorts of acts of creating new things, but it won't necessarily stick unless it's sort of in this sweet spot in between being familiar and novel. Yeah, that, that, that's really an interesting point. That you actually have very little wiggle room, right? Uh, you're, you're called the Beatles and you come along and, you know, you're going to revolutionize music, but it can't be, you know, Gregorian chants set to a rock beat. It's got to be <laughs> somewhat relatable, right? I mean, is that right, Absolutely. Anthony? I mean, maybe it could Absolutely. be. Absolutely. Yeah. I can't wait to listen to those on my circular phone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah well, that's called a rotary phone, yeah. by the way. Tony's, Tony's <laughs> taking notes for his next composition, yeah. maybe, perhaps. <laughs> 
So it seems that creativity is one of those uh, distinguishing characteristics of Homo sapiens. Uh, there are others, for example, they wear clothes. But I, but I like the creativity, and uh, I'd like to know what's going on in the brain that uh, fosters creativity. We'll be looking at that next. This piece of music is a, a work I've composed called Round Top Trio for flute, clarinet, and piano. It's Creative Brains on Big Picture Science. This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX, a YouTube video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through things like making your own cheese at home, the chemistry behind souffles, methods for botanical infusions, the formula for perfect deep-fried chicken, and much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your everyday cooking. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Season 3 is airing right now, and you can catch up with every episode for free on YouTube by searching Chemists in the Kitchen or going to youtube.com slash labxnas. That's youtube.com slash labxnas. X-N-A-S. Whether we've caught you with a paintbrush, a pen, or a lug wrench, your act of creative inspiration is helping remake the world. That's the claim of neuroscientist David Eagleman and Rice University composer Anthony Brandt. Their book, the runaway species. Now, they've told us what creativity is, an act of bending, breaking, or blending to make something new, and that it encompasses such activities as artistic creativity and scientific innovation. Now we find out what's going on in the brain when you fling paint on canvas or build a rocket ship, and why activities like these and others are worth it from an evolutionary perspective. Why do they have survival value? Tony, we'd like to talk about what's going on in your brain when you're composing music. So uh, is it okay if we play part of a composition and then talk to you about your creative process? And then we'll ask David what might be going on in your synapses and neurons or whatever instrumentation you may have inside your cranium. <laughs> sure, that sounds great. We're going to play the beginning of Nano Symphony. And uh, Tony, I wonder if you could just tell us what to listen for. We'll play about 30 seconds of it or so. Sure. Um, so this was a commission from the Nano Institute at Rice, which was celebrating the 20th anniversary of Richard Smalley winning the Nobel Prize for the discovery of the buckyball. And uh, I was asked to write a piece of music to commemorate it. And I had this idea that I would take a full evening of symphonic music, something you might go to hear your local orchestra playing, and I would compress it down into under seven minutes. And so the Nano Symphony consists of a very brief tuning, an overture, and then there's a world premiere 
There's a three-movement piano concerto. The intermission is actually written into the piece. There is a four-movement symphony, and there's even an encore where the players applaud themselves and then play an encore. (laughs) Okay. Well, we'll listen to just the beginning of it, though. So I think this is actually a really good piece for our discussion because the idea was that the audience comes with a model of what a full two-hour evening of concert music sounds like, and they have certain expectations of how that's going to progress and what it's going to consist of. And then I'm going to mush that together in such a way that they still recognize it, but obviously it's a very fresh experience because it's way, way, way shorter. And bending, breaking, and blending are going to be happening all the time. For instance, in terms of blending, in order to make it all so compact, things that sometimes happen one after the other will happen at the same time. In terms of breaking, the slow movement of a symphony often lasts seven or eight minutes, and it's wonderfully expressive. My slow movement lasts 10 seconds, and it's basically one phrase in the oboe. And so I'm constantly playing off of the archetypes and trying to distill them in such a way that there are smiles of recognition, but also there's something expressive and hopefully even moving about the experience of having it all winnowed down into this very compressed experience. You know, I noticed that you say you're going to mush the elements together, and when David describes it, he says mash. Is it mash or is it mush, you two? Well, this is part of our act of creativity is making up different <laughs> verbs when we need to. Well, yeah. so, so David, can you describe what's going on in Tony's brain when he's doing all of this? Yeah. So he's resting on the foundations of everything that's come before him and then springboarding off into something new. And that's, of course, what every composer and every writer has to do. But if you could look under the hood, or better, if we could see an fMRI, I don't know if that's relevant here, what would be happening in his brain while he's writing music and he's creating something new? So we, of course, use fMRI, a functional magnetic resonance imaging, for lots of stuff in our field. But in fact, it doesn't tell us that much about creativity. Instead, one needs a a smaller view of what's going on. And essentially, it has to do with the way that the brain takes in information and stores concepts and ideas And then these are constantly interacting. So much of this is unconscious, where everything that you've experienced in your life is is interacting, like animals at a zoo that are going to each other's cages and, and mating and all kinds of weird things are coming out of it. Most of this is happening unconsciously, and you're generating lots of ideas. Well, what if I did this? What if I put these together? And so on. And most of those ideas stink. And in fact, it's only a small fraction of them that ever even leak up into consciousness. And of those that leak up into consciousness, most of those stink too. But occasionally, (laughs) there's one thing that kind of works. And you think, oh, yeah, that, that kind of sticks for my place and time 
and the society around me, that idea is a pretty good one. And then you stick with that. And constantly the engine is running, uh, generating new mashups of things. Tony, well, did, did he he capture your process? Beautifully. Okay. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I, I just sort of wondered because you say, okay, you know, these, these, these things are sort of bubbling up. There's a cauldron somehow deep down inside your brain that's generating this stuff and some of it filters up into your consciousness. But I wonder, does, does, does the longer that you cook this, do you get a better product? Because, you know, if I'm writing about something, for example, you know, I, I sort of put it in the back of my head and, you know, a couple of days later, I, I come up with an idea, oh, I better incorporate that, oh, here's an idea, that sort of thing. Uh, does it matter how long you spend on these creative ideas? Yeah, and it's not just a matter of length of time, it's a matter of how many times you send the idea back down in there because the problem that we all face is the problem of the path of least resistance, which is to say your unconscious brain is is ruthlessly efficient and it's used to figuring out what is the fastest way that I can get what I need and then I'm out of here. And of course, this you know, in evolutionary time, if you were hungry, you didn't dance or paint, you went and got something to eat. And so one of the key things that creative minds do is whatever the first answer to something is, like, oh, here's what my nano symphony is going to sound like, you say, okay, fine, I'll, I'll, keep, I'll write that down on a piece of paper, but I'm going to send it back and I'm going to try to get something else. Okay, there's, there's answer number two. I'm going to try to get something else. And you keep doing that and you keep doing that. This proliferation of options is something that we see across all fields and all times. Everywhere that, that Tony and I have looked, we find that artists and inventors fill up whole notebooks full of drafts and versions and ideas and then, you know, finally one thing uh, makes it to the top. But the reason that one needs to do that is to kick oneself off of the most obvious path. I have a question for David and Tony. When you two met, I read that the two of you got into a conversation about creativity, or maybe it was about a lot of things, and you agreed on 99%, right? Mm-hmm. But my question You're is... You're going to ask about the 1%? Yes, I am. I want to know about the 1% <laughs> that you did not agree upon, because that's a, that's a lot to agree upon. So now we want to know what you did not agree upon. Honestly, it was 100%. I but think it was 100%. Wow. Nine, nine, decided to agree. Just, uh, not make it seem so absolute. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, you're saying that this, this process that you two are describing is something that is unique to humans. All that neurological activity is something that Homo sapiens have and other species do not. It's, it's not that other species don't. It's just that we have more of it. We also have other advantages like an opposable thumb and a larynx, and that stuff helps for sure. But suffice it to say, it has not become clear to us if other animals have really interesting things going on. Just as an example, octopi are incredibly smart. Do they have what qualifies as civilizations and governments and great writers among octopi and so on? We don't, we don't know. There's no evidence to support that. So what we have is just you know, more of this, this magical part of the brain called the cortex and that appears to make a, a lot of difference. This gets to the question of what the goal of creativity is. And, and perhaps you've answered it, but I wonder if there's a difference between Tony creating a sublime piece of music, which brings joy, and inventing the first vacuum tube or the mobile device which lets us all, lets us all connect to each other. Those are different goals, aren't they? So fundamentally, one of the things that is also remarkable about hum- the human species, which we haven't quite touched on yet, is how social we are. And there are really only several dozen s- social species on the planet at all. And of them, w- you know, we have the largest brains and, you know, all the special features that David was describing earlier. And 
building community, connecting with each other, inspiring each other, impressing each other, all of that is part of the fabric that makes creativity so necessary and potent and constantly rewarded. Yeah, the only thing I'd add about survival value is it doesn't require creativity to survive. So alligators are a very (laughs) old species. Uh, Alligators now are essentially indistinguishable from the way they were uh, 30 million years ago. And you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between them in terms of their behavior. So it's not really required to survive. All you have to do is be a really good predator and good sharp teeth and so on. Hmm. But, yeah, what's uh, very special about us is that this has become something that our brains just don't like is to have routine and familiarity. And so we're constantly leaning into the future. So, but, but what about adaptability? I mean, those those alligators, you know, if, if the climate completely changes and, and drops 20 degrees on average, you know, that's the end of the alligators, finally. Uh, but, but, but humans would, you know, be able to put on an electric blanket. Exactly right. And we're the only species that lives on every possible ecosystem on the earth. We have human representation there, whereas other animals don't tend to do that. Um, they tend to just stick in their eco niche. So it may be that eventually it becomes a survival issue. But I just want to point out that it's something else what has driven us so strongly towards leaning into the future is just this, you know, series of genetic tweaks that's made us really strange in the animal kingdom. Well, it seems that creativity is a good thing. Nobody here seems to be dissing it. But what about creativity in the future? Will we continue to be the only species with creative instincts and abilities? We'll talk about that coming up. We're speaking with neuroscientist David Eagleman and musician and uh, creative uh, genius Anthony Brandt. And so now we're listening to a little bit more of the Nano Symphony. We love talking to the human composer, Anthony Brandt, but will future conversations with a composer be with his AI replacement? The fate of creativity when the machines are in charge. It's Creative Brains on Big Picture Science. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. We are making the case that humans are a creative, innovative species. And sure, your cat is smart and crows are clever, 
but human creativity is unique. But could we be too clever for our own good, or at least for the good of our creative selves? Sure, we think it's fine if artificial intelligence takes over the boring or dangerous jobs, but what if we said that machines could embrace the creative ones as well? Could there be a downside and a dark side to creativity? We continue our conversation with neuroscientist David Eagleman and composer Anthony Brandt. Well, Tony and David, I wonder if we could look at the possible downside of being a creative species, and if there is a downside. So if you're really good at creating new things, you'll keep creating and keep creating, and then you come up with the atomic bomb because humans don't know when to say stop. So we would argue that overall the world is trending upwards, and it's very hard to know beforehand or even while things are happening, what the consequences are going to be of this incredible novelty generation that human brains are doing. And part of the evidence that we have for uh, for believing that the world is getting better is a, a little quiz question that Tony and I ask lots of people, which is, would you rather be alive now or alive 10,000 years ago? And essentially, it's unanimous that everyone wants to live now when child mortality uh, is so much better, when lifespan is so much longer, when global communication is available to us. Um, so it appears that on par, creativity has built us a better world than we used to what, have. What, what would have been your lifespan if you were working on the pyramids of Egypt? 32 years was, was expected lifespan at that point. Let, let me just uh, pick up on this a little bit about the, you know, the, the downside of creativity, and that is the future of creativity because... You know, maybe the biggest thing that's going to happen in the 21st century is inventing machines that can uh, do cognitive things as well as we can. Not just, you know, play Jeopardy better or play Go better, but that they can, you know, write poetry, music, whatever. And, you know, as humans, we like to say, hey, and we are saying this, by the way, here. We're the only species that can do this stuff. We're creative. Anything else you can say about humans, at least they're creative. But maybe that won't be true 50 years from now. We're not the only species. I think that's right. I think it's already becoming not true. So with AI, it's very good at taking in massive input and mashing it up and creating new versions of things that we haven't heard or seen or experienced before. Now, the downside with AI doing that, it's no good at filtering. So it's really good at generating new options, but it's not very good at saying, okay, this is what's going to land with the humans around me. Because in order to do that, you would need to train an AI to actually be a human to know what's going to work. And so far, there's, there's no progress on that. So just to be clear, you do believe that machines could be just as creative as humans. How would that come about? Would they be autonomous machines? Well, it's already come about. You know, if we take creativity to be uh, this this mashing up of inputs that you've taken in, computers are excellent at that, and they can take in a lot more information than we can. One of the things that, that Tony and I talk about in the book is that creativity is massively enhanced just by the fact that we're extremely social creatures, and we are constantly trying to surprise and impress one another. And so one of our suggestions is that if you really want to bootstrap what's going on with AI, what you should do is make a community of AI agents that are all trying to surprise and impress one another. And by doing so, uh, that will speed things up a lot because they're always going to be looking for the next novel way of, of doing something. Like what you say in your book that humans do at dinner parties. Exactly right. Humans do this all the time. They're always trying to say the zinger that makes everyone say, oh, but, I'm but, but wait a minute. But, I mean, if, and, the, and, if, the, if the machines are the creators, but they're also the critics, 
you know, where's the audience? I mean, maybe the machines are the audience, and we're, we're just sort of out of the loop. Oh, that certainly might be the case. Facebook recently reported that they had uh, networks talking to one another and that these networks essentially invented their own language. Now, that, it mm. turns out, was an exaggeration of what happened, but it's a mere foreshadowing of what will happen. Maybe it'll take five years, maybe 10, but this idea that computers will start having their own private channels of communication that don't include us at all is certainly something that'll happen. And we see this all throughout the animal kingdom, by the way, where animals communicate at ultrasonic frequencies or in different parts of the visible spectrum or so on, and they're doing their own thing, and we don't even realize that they're having conversations there. Did you ever see the movie The Power? I think it was The Power. Yeah, 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 where, you know, you had this supercomputer, and it finds out that there's another one somewhere in Russia, and they start having their own conversations, and pretty Mm. soon the, uh, the humans are out of the loop. Computers are creative all the time in the sense of doing very new things. So AlphaGo, which is the computer program that beat the world champion Go player, the the interesting part of the story, which goes untold most of the time, is that that human who was beat, he won 76% of his competitions against other humans. But after playing AlphaGo for a while, he now wins 93% of his competitions. And that's because he picked up things from AlphaGo that were extremely creative moves, moves that no human had ever done before, had ever thought of doing. Do you think a computer could write a joke that would make you laugh? It's a long way from doing that, but you could also easily imagine a partnership between humans and computers. For instance, computers facilitating the generation of options and humans curating that. I was thinking about how fast movie composers have to score a film. They're often the last person in the in the chain of tasks. Uh, they've got a couple of weeks before the opening, and they've got this whole staff who've got to do the orchestration and scoring, and they've got to record it. And imagine you had a computer who could help you take the main theme of the the piece and cast it in the romantic mood and the, you know, suspense mode and all of that. And then the composer, you know, says, okay, version 12 is excellent and so on. I mean, you could easily see that taking off as uh, being an incredible enhancement of what composers are doing. I think there's already a collection of jokes written by computers. And in fact, the way you teach a computer to do something these days is not by writing a clever algorithm or anything like that. You just give it a million examples, right? Uh, you right. know, there's a, there's a computer that can recognize cats, and it's better at recognizing photos of cats than, than humans are, and maybe even that than cats are. I don't, I don't know. But the, the way it was taught, oh. was by, it was shown a million photos and videos of cats, of which uh, that's only a small fraction of what's available on the web. So if you gave a computer a million jokes that people find funny, then maybe it could, you know, imitate that. Maybe it could make funny jokes. I think that's a particularly hard challenge, and it will get solved at some point. But this is an example of the importance of being human. The things that strike Mm. us as funny are so idiosyncratic, and you really need to be a human to get that. So, I mean, like the idea of a computer making a joke. Yeah, exactly. It's funny. Right. That's (laughs) exactly. Um, So, you know, maybe someday we'll get there and we'll listen to this old broadcast and we'll say, oh, gosh, we were so wrong. The computers are hilarious. They've replaced Seinfeld and all the other comedians. But it doesn't seem – it seems to me like that's later down the line. Yeah, well, the last job standing uh, for humans is going to be comedian. Is that it? (laughs) Well, it sounds like there are many areas of creativity that at least David says that AI will eventually be able to perform. Um, But 
there is a growing sophistication now in the area of computer-written compositions. And we're going to play something, but Tony, first I want to hear your opinion of this development because this may put you out of a job. Well, you know, I, I think about the fact that um, George Bizet had an opera premiere that was about average guy falling in love with a gypsy, put his heart and soul into it. It was a total flop, closed after two nights. People totally disregarded it gone and he died of heartbreak basically a month later and that opera was Carmen it's now the most performed opera in the world and computers are going to have the same challenge as Bizet whether they're wonderful composers or not they're still going to have to have their music land with the public it's going to have to hit that sweet spot of novelty and familiarity and be something that the public of their time and place responds to and computers i don't think are going to have an easier time answering that uh, that than we are they might have fewer butterflies in the stomach on opening night though they might not be as anxious well they still might be worried someone will turn them off (laughs) (laughs) okay we're going to play something now this is a clip of an early example of computer composed music. It was created at the University of Illinois in 1956, and it is called, Seth? Uh, The Iliac Suite for String Quartet. Iliac refers to a computer that was at the University of Illinois, and it had almost 3,000 vacuum tubes in it. So I figure it probably went down about every 20 minutes when a tube burned out. But it did create this piece of music. It's really cool, actually, because it's almost like a Turing test. I've done something with my class where I play three modern works without telling them that one of them is written by a computer. And then I just ask them to rate the works based on different metrics. And the computer piece scores as a real piece. No one guesses that it was written by a machine, but it's treated as being mediocre. And so that's the interesting thing about it is that computers can do something ordinary. They're not yet able to do the extraordinary. And there's something special about the way, as David has been pointing out, we get to collide with each other and feed off of each other's ideas and and that need we have to have that connection to what's familiar but constantly be having these sparks of surprise that computers can't yet quite get. But Tony, and Tony, that piece was, was commissioned, I don't know if it would be commissioned, I guess created, created 70 yeah. years ago. Yeah. 70 no, years ago. A, so it's, right. I mean, the AI, or at least computers, or computer written compositions has yeah. has evolved quite a bit since then. It, it has and it hasn't. So I'm familiar with, for instance, the IAMS computer in Spain, which, like Legere and Hiller's music that you were just playing the, that he had programmed, uh, similarly writes original music in a modern style. You know, that's the real test. And it's incredible achievement that it does what it does, but it's not yet on the level of human mastery. Is, is there a Turing test for music, you know? 
I mean, it sounds like this piece well, actually it, passed it, the Turing test. It passes the Turing test in the sense that you feel like it's written by an average composer, but not an exceptional one. If we could just explain just generally how it's done. How does a computer compose music? Well, first of all, it has to be programmed by human beings. And, you know, I have to say I'm not privy to the, the software that designs it, but basically the composers are doing a certain amount of self-reflection and saying, you know, it, given a certain starting point idea, uh, what are the ways that I generate a continuation and elaboration of those ideas? And then they're programming that, carrying out processes of variation and fragmentation and the combining of ideas, I mean, bending, breaking, and blending in musical terms to have a a sense of narrative and form. Now, David, Tony says that what will separate computer compositions from human-written compositions is that we will be able to distinguish that humanness in the music, that human fingerprint. And do you think that's true, that there will always be this distinction between what was non-human created art form and human created, that we will always be able to distinguish it because we'll innately know what the human presence created. So, uh, Tony, I'll be interested to hear if we have a different take on this, but I kind of feel like the music Turing test will be passed first. In other words, Mm. AI will create music that you really can't tell if it was composed by a human or a computer, only because the computer can very easily do things like make little changes in timing or do things that are very human-like by digesting the compositions of a million composers and impersonating those traits. So I suspect that music will be maybe one of the first things to fall. This doesn't mean that uh, Tony should be looking for another job. I don't know. (laughs) I think where it stands out, like I'm really impressed with Shimon the marimba playing improvising computer, who does a fantastic job of being in the midst of human beings responding in real time to the music they're playing and improvising on it. But it's still riding the rails of certain conventions, and there are certain things that will never occur to Shimon's digital imagination. I actually think this is exciting. I mean, you know, I think that actually we are tending towards a world in which we're going to look with fervor and optimism about having more creative colleagues on board, including digital ones. I don't see that as a worrisome thing. Now, David's looking a little too content thinking he has job security because he's a neuroscientist. <laughs> oh, gosh, no, I would love it. But... I would absolutely love it if computers <laughs> could take over my job because what we do, we have labs all over the world, we being the neuroscientific community, and we, we attack problems one at a time in very small mm. ways, and it's very expensive. The government gives lots of money to get little baby steps of progress. It would be absolutely terrific if an AI system in 60 seconds could do what me and my colleagues do in 60 years and say, okay, well, here's a bunch of hypotheses. I'm going to come up with the best set of experiments that will nail down which one of these are true and not true. Oh, and here's the result, and it's done. And now your principles of neural science textbook, which was 800 pages long, is now three pages long. It's a pamphlet (laughs) because we figured it out. I would love that. Yeah, you know, uh, people regard, in fact, AI as a threat. But, you know, if it really came came to being, I mean, we would be maybe the pets of the machines. And I, I like to point out that pets get fed regularly. They get to sleep a lot. What's not to like? I mean, you know, we will enjoy our machine overlords. I, and I, I think David and I would say nothing's ever going to stop the software running in human brains. I mean, it doesn't matter how many machines are around. We're still going to be doing it ourselves. 
well, creativity, it's uh, proprietary to humans, may not always be proprietary to humans, but I have to say that it's been a very creative and interesting discussion with our guests, David Eagleman and Anthony Brandt, and I want to thank them both for their contributions and for being with us. Thank you, Seth. Thank you so much. Wonderful to talk to you. Anthony Brandt is a composer and professor at Rice University. David Eagleman is a neuroscientist at Stanford University, and their book is The Runaway Species, How Human Creativity Remakes the World. And finally, this is uh, my piece, Full Circle for Saxophone Quartet. we've heard in the show is that for now, human creativity is unique, and we heard the reasons why. And not only unique, but apparently the best. Computer music is still considered mediocre, but you know what worries me, Molly? What happens when those creative computers become so creative that even we can't appreciate their work? I don't know what's going to happen then. Humans may still be unique among animals. Yeah, but if the most creative things on the planet are machines, I'm not sure that's going to make me feel better. Thanks to the creative crew who helped produce the show, senior producer Gary Niederhoff, operations manager Barbara Vance, and intern Anna-Katrina Hunter. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit scientific and education organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life, including finding evidence for ancient water on Mars. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to the Big Picture Science episode, Creative Brains. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science episodes, well, you'll find them in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. And if you're a podcast listener but prefer listening to over-the-air radio because you admire the creative talents of Heinrich Hertz and Guglielmo Marconi, well, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. And to reach us directly with your comments, well, throw in that faint praise and then email it all to bigpicturescience at seti.org. All right, how about some show-ending music, Gary? Sure. was really the end. (laughs) Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Monsters are as old as humanity itself. Monsters embody our fears. Yet, they help us define the boundaries of what it means to be human. We know most monsters aren't real. Yet, we can use monsters to learn about reality, psychology, 
biology, folklore, literature, critical thinking. We're on a journey to learn about the world through the lens of monsters. And we hope you'll come along with us. Subscribe at monstertalk.org.